Hey, what's up, guys? My name is Rico from the Made in China podcast, SourceFind Asia, and EnterChina.co. Um, if you don't know what EnterChina uh, is, you can check out the last episode. I talked about it a little bit more in depth. But real quick, we're going to be hosting a webinar for EnterChina. So if you go to EnterChina.co slash webinar, it should be April, uh, should be September 23rd or 22nd, actually. Um it's going to be about how to find the right supplier, sort of stuff that we talk about. I'm actually going to break down the methods that I use in SourceFind Asia to find high quality suppliers. So that's, that's that. So in this episode, I interviewed Neil Woodvine from Remitsi. He is the COO at the company. They're a startup uh, based in Beijing. They do cross-border payments through Bitcoin. So very interesting technology, very, very fascinating company, very smart guy. Neil's been doing business in China for a little while. He actually did sourcing back in the day and uh, got into Bitcoin. So working for uh, one of the largest Bitcoin exchanges, uh, Bitcoin companies in China. And then eventually, you know, he met his business partner and decided to make a go of it on his own. So I actually met him at the cross-border summit like what was that like april this year and we did the podcast in <laughs> i'm pretty ashamed to admit it but we did the podcast in like may or june and it's just kind of been one of those things that i had um you know floating around and i just didn't have time to get to it but finally ready to release it and he just dropped a lot of knowledge bombs uh we tried to not go too deep into uh into the actual payment processing and stuff like that because, you know, for a lot of people, maybe they, they're not even familiar with Bitcoin. So we talked about what Bitcoin is, uh, what blockchain technology is, the the way it can be applied, where we think it is right now, where we think it's going in the future. So we kind of touched on the big, the beginner stuff and also a little bit of intermediate and advanced, but pretty much focused on his company and what they're doing and, and sort of his, his mindsets around doing business in China. So without further ado, enjoy the podcast. I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. What motivates you more? Money, legacy, technological innovation, or acquiring knowledge? I think, uh, as you're probably aware, Rico, that working at a startup, you're um, uh, not exactly personally um, flush with cash. Um, I think there's probably um, uh, better ways to kind of make money in the short term, like having a stable career and a and a and a good industry. But um, uh, yeah, I think when you're working at a startup, you need to be motivated more than money. Um, otherwise I think it would be quite easy to, uh, lose focus. Um, so, uh, for me personally, I think, um, the, the, the key thing is like, um, an opportunity to make a big change in the way, um, the world works. Um, I think, uh, Bitcoin, um, has come along and blockchain too. Um, and it, it's kind of allowed people to do things that, they haven't been able to do before. Um, and, um, it's allowing completely new businesses to be started. Um, I think the, the finance industry, um, was something very difficult for startups to approach, but now with this kind of, um, technology, um, people can get in and, and do quite exciting things with very small teams. Um, 
So, um, I mean, it's coming into um, starting remitsy, uh, I knew business payments were a problem from um, work that I'd done in the past, but I wouldn't exactly say I was passionate about it. I think, I mean, it's just payments, right? But um, actually, after um, getting into the, the, the remitsy project, it's um, I found that I've actually become increasingly um, passionate about it. And um, I think it's actually quite scary um, how bad um, some of the old systems are and uh, how much money is being lost by businesses every time they make a payment. Um, I like to call it uh, value leakage. Um, if, you, if you imagine a kind of a water pipe and every time the pipe is going from one person to another, um, you have quite a big hole where a lot of water is kind of escaping. Um, I think that's a pretty good analogy for um, the way business payments work today. Um, and th th this money is just going to middlemen that are essentially just moving money from one place to another. There's not really much value being added to the products or the services being provided. Um, and at the end of the day, all of these fees, it's not really the businesses swallowing the costs. At the end of the day, it's the, the end customer picking up the tab. They're the ones that are buying the, the goods that are being manufactured, the services that are being rendered. And, um, those extra costs, um, that are brought in, brought into the system by, by, uh, banks and third party payment providers. Um, it's the, it's the consumer that's paying for that. Yep. Yeah, we're definitely getting more into the, the payments part. I, I want to start at the beginning, though. So simply put, for people who may not know, uh, what is blockchain technology, specifically Bitcoin? So um, I always feel a little bit apprehension when trying to answer this question, because I think it's, um, it's a very uh, complex uh, answer. It's very, it's very difficult to kind of um, nail down. I think the, the best analogy is um, uh, if you try to imagine explaining the internet to somebody that's never used it before, who'd never even heard of the concept, I think you would probably find it quite difficult. Um, I think if you found five people and asked them to explain what the internet is, you would get five completely different answers. Uh, like, uh, to some people, it might be a publishing platform. To others, it might be like, a communication and messaging protocol. If you ask a developer, they may say it's an app development platform. Um, so I think um, blockchain is actually quite similar in some respects. It, it, it can be a lot of um, different things to, to different people. Um, but uh, I mean, I, I'm just going to describe it from my perspective. Um, I think blockchain is um, just one component really of um, Bitcoin technology uh, and Bitcoin technology being first and foremost, uh, um, a digital currency. So um, the blockchain is the, the, the part of Bitcoin that um, basically packages up um, and records uh, transactions for the network. Um, and you can use this kind of um, transaction packaging and recording system um, separately, or you can use it in, in conjunction with a, a digital currency like uh, Bitcoin. Um, there's also other altcoins out there which I'll probably not go into. Um, but uh, in my opinion, I think still the most exciting application of blockchain is Bitcoin, um, in particular because it's open and anybody can p participate, whether they're kind of um, uh, trying to mine um, Bitcoin or whether they're trying to um, just transact, um, whether they want to develop 
um, applications on the platform, anybody can p- participate. Um, whereas I think um, at the moment there's a, a quite a, a strong narrative coming out of kind of uh, more established industries that the blockchain is actually the more exciting um, innovation. Um, but unfortunately, I think that often is kind of um, uh, people are trying to kind of um, make it a more kind of private, controllable um, platform rather than leaving it open like uh, Bitcoin and the internet. Um, so, uh, I mean, just trying to um, uh, describe what how a blockchain works, what it is. Um, I think if you look at um, transactions in the past, um, any any transaction that you made over the internet or through the banking system in the past, um, a ledger was kept uh, centrally by a third party. So um, if you and me wanted to make a transaction, let's say I wanted to send you $100, um, a third party, probably the bank, would have to update their ledger to say um, $100 less in my account and $100 more in your account. Um, what the blockchain uh, does is it essentially allows... Um, it essentially it shares this ledger with everybody. Um, so if I want to send, let's say, um, one Bitcoin to you, I update my ledger and then broadcast that update to the network. Then everybody, including you um, and Bill and uh, uh, everybody else, um, updates their ledger to match mine. Um, so we just completed a transaction now, minus one Bitcoin from my account, plus one Bitcoin to your account. Um, and we didn't involve any other third parties. It was completely just between the two of us. And that's also that also acts as a, a safeguard, right? Like if I was trying to steal money and I tried to make my my ledger look like I have more money, if everybody else's ledger doesn't reflect mine, then it would be rejected, right? That transaction would be rejected. Exactly. So all of everybody's um, handling and managing these ledgers. Um, and everybody's checking each other's. So as soon as somebody starts um, um, act, behaving badly, um, they get discovered very quickly and their ledger is um, um, ignored, essentially, from the network. And just to clarify, this is not like people. This is computers. Everyone's personal, uh, you know, so when you say everyone's checking each other and everyone's ledger gets updated, that's an automatic process, right? Yes, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm doing my best to try and simplify it here. No, I'm, I'm, but, I'm, yes. I'm pulling you along. Don't worry. <laughs> but you, you, you've done a good job. I was just trying to. I was. I'm trying to think of like what uh, if somebody doesn't know what you're talking about. What, what would the question be? Yeah. 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 So I mean, like, just to, just to center in on Bitcoin quickly. I think um, there's four properties for me that I think make uh, Bitcoin really um, exciting. Um, uh, it's person to person, P2P. So. As I just mentioned, we're able to transact now um, uh, just between the two of us rather than involving any um, third parties. Um, what that leads to is that you end up with a trustless system. It's actually not completely trustless. It's kind of trust minimized, but um, uh, trustless is the is the label anyway. Um, so now we no longer need to trust that the bank is holding our money. We no longer need to trust that the bank will uh, deliver the money on time. Um, we, we, we can rely on the network and know that um, uh, the transaction will will certainly go through. Um, and another part of Bitcoin is that it has limited quantity. And I think a lot of people um, kind of struggle to understand why uh, Bitcoin has value. Um, but one of the kind of key components of that is the fact that the quantity is limited um, and it always will be. Um, 
due to the way uh, the kind of um, the the, the technology is um, structured, um, and then also um, it's an open platform, as I just mentioned, which means that anybody can participate, anybody can um, uh, buy a Bitcoin, anybody can transact, anybody can also um, build other platforms on top of it, much like the internet. Um, anybody can kind of publish a website and anybody can kind of um, create um, apps on top of it. I guess you've already touched on the, on the main advantages. Uh, what are the disadvantages and, and why do you use, why did you specifically focus on Bitcoin? I know that there's other cryptocurrencies out there. So why, why did you focus on Bitcoin for your business? So uh, in terms of um, the disadvantages, um, I think um, everybody's quite aware of Bitcoin's volatility. Um, so this is a really brand new tech um, and it's still being, it's still in its early stages of development. So that means um, uh, there's still uncertainty about which direction the technology is going to go, um, uh, what the technology is going to be able to do in the future um, and also um, how it's going to be regulated. Um and I think also when you're trying to bootstrap a brand new currency, um, you can expect high amounts of volatility. And I think that'll continue for uh, many years to come. Um, so um, if you do want to use something like uh, Bitcoin as a, um, a kind of uh, a transaction medium, um, you have to be very, very careful because the price can change minute to minute, hour to hour, um, which can I think put a lot of people off and it limits um, its uses in, in, in business. Um, and the next question was, uh, why do we choose to use Bitcoin in our business? Um, I think because um, at the moment that there are other altcoins out there, um, I think uh, the most prominent ones at the moment are probably um, uh, Litecoin and um, uh, Ethereum. Um, but I think at the end of the day, Bitcoin is still the largest um, and most reliable, the most developed upon um, uh, digital currency out there. Um, and we think it offers the, 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 the most amount, the most reliability um, for, for um, the cross-border payments that we're, we're working in. Let's, uh, let's get to know you a little bit better. I'm sure a lot of listeners are wondering, who, who's this Neil guy? Um, we've previously spoken about how you actually used to do sourcing in, when, in your early days in China and then you worked for OKCoin which I think is what the largest uh, Bitcoin company in, in China and um, can you talk a little bit about your background and how you got into Bitcoin and blockchain tech yep no problems um, I uh, studied Chinese at uh, university um, in the UK and pretty much immediately after graduating, I uh, moved to China and got a job at a factory in uh, Jiangsu, uh, manufacturing fine dispersion machinery. And that was a bit of a, a kind of a, a baptism of fire um, in, in the manufacturing industry. Um, I was working in a British, uh, Sino-British uh, joint venture. Um, and I was essentially the, the, the kind of British representative um, kind of looking after the kind of uh, the manufacturing in, in in the Chinese factory. Yeah. Um. So uh, that was kind of my kind of entry into the world of um, uh, uh, Chinese manufacturing of, of factories, um, uh, uh, machinery, and that kind of set me off on this path where I worked on um, a lot of other kind of 
um, sourcing projects. Um, and finally, um, I was working um, for a, a cement machinery consultant um, in Nanjing. Um, and while I was there, um, I uh, basically a friend sent me an article on on Bitcoin, and uh, I, I uh, had a bit of spare money left over, so I uh, I invested a little bit, and that was just before the the huge run up in price at the at the end of two thousand and thirteen. Um, so as the price was rising, um, I got quite excited and um, started uh, researching about what this Bitcoin thing was, why the price was rising, um, why everybody was so excited about it. And um, by the time the price started crashing a couple of months later, um, I was already hooked. And um, uh, despite the fact that the price was going down, I was kind of still completely convinced that this was um, going to be a really important technology in the future. Um, and it was going to um, have quite a big effect on on the way um the finance world works so um i i pretty much made a decision by that point that i had to do anything i could to uh get into the industry um so i kind of um uh, started looking at potential um jobs that i could do and um the the, the chinese uh, bitcoin exchanges were all um hiring international teams at the time so um I applied to OKCoin, which is which was the largest um, Bitcoin exchange in China at the time, which probably means it was the largest Bitcoin exchange in the world. And I uh, uh, got a um, a job doing uh, business development on their on their international team. Nice. I I got into I got into Bitcoin. Um, I was I think it was two thousand and twelve or two thousand and thirteen, around the same time, just before the price crashed. Uh, it was just like I was, I was. I think I was on Business Insider, and then I came across an article about uh, about um, what's what's the name of that website? Silk Road uh, on the deep web. Do you know you know about the Silk Road? Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, definitely you have to, right? Um, I, I was yeah. just I was just fascinated. I was reading, and then and then they were talking about Bitcoin. I'm like, what's Bitcoin? And then you know, just went down a rabbit hole from there. And I was just like preaching yep. to all my friends about this new technology. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, and uh, going into your your company setup, so your CEO is uh, Richard Bensberg, and uh, that's right, yeah. and you had initial funding from John Porter, I believe. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. How did you How did your team come together? Yeah, so um, uh, so I was working at OKCoin, um, and uh, while I was there, I met Richard, who was um, uh, director of compliance, um, and. Uh, we both had studied at Leeds University, which kind of gives us a bit of a connection. I think um, uh, both of us had quite um, a similar point of view about uh, Bitcoin and blockchain technology. And uh, during during that year that we worked there, we became quite good friends. Um, uh, both of us um, later left for uh, around the same time for different reasons and um, started kind of each playing on, um, playing with some some of our own ideas about what we could do with the knowledge that we got from from our year at OKCoin. Um, Richard was um, working, Richard began working on a, a cross-border project with John, um, uh, looking at kind of um, uh, improving the, the cross-border payment industry. Um, and that kind of started again quite a bit of momentum. And um, then they invited me to um, uh, join them and, and, uh, and, and work together based on because it was quite a good fit, really, with the, the work that I'd done in the past with um, sourcing and um, manufacturing in China. Um, these cross-border payments 
were we kind of imagined them um, kind of uh, fitting into that that industry. Mm-hmm. And and in a business like yours, how crucial was that initial capital? Um, so uh, I think um, starting a fintech company is quite different from um, starting any other type of startup. Um, you're working with a much kind of greater regulatory burden. Um, and it's very difficult to get going without, without an investment. Um, so, I mean, in our early days, we were having to get licenses, um, open bank accounts, um, stuff like that. Also, um, Richard and I are not, um, uh, programmers, uh, which is obviously a, a quite a big barrier to entry <laughs> when you're starting, starting a startup. Um, so we also need to, uh, hire developers to, to, to help us build out, build out the technology. So, um, yeah, that initial investment was pretty crucial. Um, and it allowed us to, uh, get going, uh, straight away rather than having to kind of create proofs of concept and, um, uh, kind of, uh, cool raising. Um, yeah, it allowed us to kind of just hit the ground running and just get stuck, stuck in basically. So you guys were taking on all the Steve Jobs type role where you, you bring in a bunch of develop, developers and tell them, I need this technology made right now. Sometimes. Can you expand a little bit on your role as a CEO? Uh, yes, uh, to be honest, I, I kind of sometimes feel a little bit embarrassed um, saying I'm a CEO at a seven-person company. But, um, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's essentially just a title. And um, we're a small team. Everybody's uh, handling different things. Um, I think uh, we're still um, in our super early stages, so we're still kind of working out who's, who's specializing in what. But um, I think at the moment, um, I've been most heavily involved in uh, branding, uh, marketing, um, and uh, working a lot on uh, business development. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we all wear a lot of different hats. And uh, uh, yeah, it just kind of depends on what, what needs doing on, on, on which day. I think what you guys are doing is is pretty amazing. You know, I mean, you. I talked to you at the cross border summit uh, that we went to. I think it was like three weeks ago, and I mean, you told yep. me about it, and immediately I was sold. Uh, it's. Can you talk a little bit about what Remitzi is exactly, and how does it work? Okay, so I mean, uh, despite the fact that we're a, a, a company that uses Bitcoin, I don't like to kind of think of us as a, a Bitcoin or a blockchain company. We're essentially just um, a cross-border payments company that helps businesses um, outside of China make payments into China. Um, and what we're essentially doing is we're connecting the um, domestic banking networks um, and cutting out the, the international um, uh, uh, banking networks, which are quite slow and old, um, whereas the, the domestic banking networks are actually pretty fast. They're cheap. Um, they work quite efficiently. Um, and that, that's the same whether you're in the UK, whether you're in Germany, whether you're in uh, China. Um, domestic banking you know, networks are great. So um, we essentially allow um, a British company to, to make a payment within within the UK. Um, uh, then we uh, basically convert the, 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 the pounds into renminbi and deliver the renminbi within a domestic banking network in China. And the way we do the, the conversion and the cross border, border part is, um, by, um, uh, basically, um, using Bitcoin, um, in the middle as a kind of, uh, conversion medium, um, between the pounds and the renminbi. 
and that cuts that cuts down on 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 time it cuts down on the fees what a, break down the fees a little bit yeah um so through the traditional system um you're essentially going through um many different um uh, third parties um so um if you let's say a traditional uh, bank payment from the UK would uh, um, start with the, the the bank in the UK and then it would go through the the swift network um and the swift network is basically a a string of um connected correspondent banks um and each one of those um uh, middlemen each one of those third parties needs to take a cut to kind of pay for their operating costs um and these fees can can mount up um essentially what you see as an end user is a, a send fee at the send end um and then a receive fee at the at the uh, the recipient end and then also um when 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 the currency is being converted um you're also seeing um quite a lot of uh, uh exchange rate losses there too so um i think whatever exchange rate a bank provides to you um is not the um what we call the the real exchange rate which is the mid market rate um generally it, it it also includes a little bit of uh, commission for them too um uh, so we think it's it's really important that uh, um everybody is aware of this uh, mid market rate and uh, is aware that any exchange rate that they get that's um uh, different from that means that they they they're paying another fee um so uh Goldman Sachs have uh, um estimated that uh, the average um cost of making a, a bank transfer is around 6%. I don't think that's necessarily true for um, payments to China, but certainly across the world um on average businesses are losing about um 6% every time they, they they make a transaction. Yeah, and it's more with PayPal. So with pay, um yeah, so originally I, I we kind of um imagined ourselves competing um solely with um the banks um but um as we've kind of developed we've realized that there's still many businesses using um services like uh, uh PayPal under the third party uh, payment providers uh for their for their transactions and um the fees through these third party uh, payment providers are, are really quite high um you have processing fees um you have really really um bad exchange rates and then also usually um at the recipient's end there's there's another fee for for withdrawals or um or other processing costs um so i mean um uh, yeah they, they can get quite high we we estimate that um on average a, a paypal transaction from um sender to uh, recipient costs um uh, between 6 and 9% and that it's really important to kind of um point out that when we're talking about the costs of the transaction we're not just talking about the costs to the sender or to the recipient we think it's important to view the payment holistically you have to kind of um understand that your recipient's fees are also your fees too these 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 fees add up and they kind of um they add to the cost of the transaction so um if you if you can reduce those fees for the recipient technically you should also be able to um reduce the cost of the uh, goods or the services that you're you're purchasing it's it complicates things because uh when i give out when i send out an invoice i don't even know exactly how much money i'm actually going to receive most of the time i'm i'm like guessing so if i quote somebody a thousand dollars for for whatever service and then i will 
I'll take into consideration, you know, how much is the bank transfer fee, and then I'll add that to the invoice. But then, you know, sometimes it's forty dollars, sometimes it's forty-five. So it just it fluctuates depending on the bank. So then I have to adjust that in my, in my, in my books, in my, and it's like it's just a nightmare. So having a situation like this where you know kind of exactly how much you're going to receive is is you know so good for the the receiver as well. And like you said, you can reduce. Um, the costs for the buyer. Um, are they even- but, I mean, that just just to kind of just to kind of um, uh, also make a point on that. I, I think um, that's an, another problem with the old way of um, doing business in this in this sector. Um, fees have been hidden for uh, but, uh, fees are hidden by uh, banks. Fees are hidden by the third party payment providers. And I think in the future, you're going to see that some of these new players that are coming in, whether they're using Bitcoin, um, or not, um, the, the newer fintech players recognize that, um, uh, people that are using these systems are sick of not being able to predict their costs. And, um, we think it's really important for, um, uh, the costs of these payments to become much more transparent. Um, so it's important to kind of point out the mid market rate and it's important to kind of, um, make it clear to the customer exactly how much they're paying to make that transaction. Are there um, limitations on the amount of money one can transfer in a day with with your service? So with Remitsi, yeah, the, the, um, we um, have a limitation of $100,000 per day per customer. Um, we don't have many. Basically, we're, we're, um, we specialize really in small business payments, so we don't have many customers hitting the um, hitting that limit. But um, yeah, that's that, that's our limit for now. And then, who qualifies for this service? Like, wh- what kind of? If I want to register with Remitsi, what do I, what do I have to do to be qualified? So it just essentially you just need to be a, a registered business, um, and you need to be making uh, business-related transactions. Um, as long as you meet those two criteria, um, anybody can use our service. I, I think we talked about this before. It's just like proving that would just be maybe showing your business license and then also showing an invoice, right? So um, when you, uh, we've tried to make the registration process as fast as possible. Um, you can actually register in less than five minutes quite quite happily. Um, so when you input those details, um, uh, your, let's say your, your company name, um, we can actually go and check um, uh, public record information um, to find out the rest of the information we require on, on, on your company. Um, and then also, uh, no, that's about it. Sorry. Yeah. And then is there any, is there any more cost besides the, the, the fee that you take off of the transactions? Joining, uh, uh, setting up an account is certainly free. Um, and the only fee that we take is the, um, one to 2.5% on the, um, send amount that you're sending to your, um, to your recipient. Um, so you've touched on, on the old banking system. Can you talk a little bit? I like the way you explain the you compare the SWIFT network to what you're doing right now. Can you talk a little bit about how convoluted that system is? Um, I think I've already touched on it already. Um, but, I mean, uh, the SWIFT network was um, uh, set up in the early 70s, I think 1973. Um, so that was a long time before even the internet. Um, and really, it's just not kind of cut out for um the internet age um it it's basically a, a long like i mentioned earlier a long string of correspondent banks 
and um, you have um, a lot of kind of manual hands-on work at those banks to kind of transmit these payments to the next step in the process. Um, I think, for example, just recently there was a big scandal about um, uh, uh, bank, uh, the Bangladeshi um, SWIFT network getting hacked, um, and that was just a case of the hackers uh, basically tricking a um, HP printer into printing out the uh, the wrong recipient details. Um, that shouldn't be able to happen in um, this kind of digital age that we live in, I think. Um, and um, I think it's time now for um, some more kind of um, uh, modern um, international transaction networks to be to be set up. Yeah, and it's like when you when you send a, a payment, it's you said there's multiple banks communicating, so it's like my bank will tell uh, another bank that I've I've sent payment, and then somebody has to physically reflect that, right? There has to be like a person who does that. Exactly, and it's it's also just a, a, mes- a messaging system. So um, not only do you have like a lot of kind of uh, real people having to interact with the system and paper to be handed over from one person to the next. Um, it, it's also just a one-way message. So let's say um, a problem occurs with a payment, either it gets lost or um, uh, one of the kind of um, the digits in the address is wrong, so it can't be delivered. It's very, very difficult to find out the status of that payment um, within the SWIFT network. What essentially you have to do is send another message through the system um, to follow it up um, to find out what what the problem is. Um, and that can often uh, require a, a phone call. Um, uh, basically, it, it's, it's a very difficult problem to resolve. And okay, so the, the SWIFT network is outdated and things like that. But then, interestingly, I remember you talking about banks and you said you actually want the banks to continue to operate. And to me, and I guess to other people, it would sound like your business is going to put you know, banking out of business. But uh, are you worried at all in the future of, you know, banks putting pressure on a, on a business like yours or not wanting to cooperate with, with your company? So um, so payments are just a small part of the um, uh, of, of bank's business. So I think if we disrupt payments, we're not really disrupting the banks. Um, also, I think... Um, uh, our system is heavily reliant on banks, actually. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we're actually just um, kind of cutting out the um, the international banking network rather than um, the domestic uh, banking network. Um, we we actually think the domestic banking networks are pretty pretty great. Um, uh, in China, in the UK, especially, both of them are very fast and very cheap. Um, so uh, we we need them to be in business. To, to be able to complete our payments and hold our clients' funds. And some, some banks are beginning to be interested in adopting blockchain technology, right? Uh, banks are also, um, yes, very um, kind of keen to explore um, Bitcoin and blockchain technology. Um, I think almost every single large bank at the moment has a um, blockchain laboratory that where they're kind of um, uh, running quite a few experiments. Um, I think uh, even uh, organizations like Swift are looking into how it can be used to um, optimize uh, their payment systems. So, um, yeah, I think um, uh, banks are also going to try and fight back 
against um, these kind of smaller fintech players, which are um, perhaps delivering um, things like payments in a kind of uh, more efficient, uh, cheaper way. Or if they're um, smart, they'll they'll invest in you guys, and and or maybe want to start a partnership. You know. Well, I mean that would be awesome, yeah. but um, yeah, uh, let's 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 see how things play out. <laughs> All right, um, a lot of people are skeptical of Bitcoin. I, I mean, I think I mean I never was because I was excited about it. But when I used to talk to my friends about it, you know, there was always these new stories. You know, Bitcoin Bank gets hacked uh, or Bitcoin Exchange loses millions of dollars. I remember Mount uh, Mount Mount Gox Mount Gox Mount Gox. Yeah, um, back in 2014, I think they they lost what was like 850 thousand Bitcoin, right? Uh, That's right. Yeah. Like, and then of course we talked a little bit about like things like um, Silk Road. And you know the dark web. Like, what are the biggest misconceptions people have about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in particular? Um, I think um, a lot of people associate it with um, crime and, um, uh, like you say, kind of hacks. Um, but um, I think a lot of that is fueled by um, uh, the media, who kind of like uh, sensational stories. Um, and I think um, what kind of gets missed a lot is all of the development work that's kind of going on in the background quietly. Um, there's a lot of very exciting applications being developed out there, which um, I think people are not really uh, being um, exposed to. Um, and I think another kind of common misconception is just saying Bitcoin is a kind of digital currency only um, or a speculative asset. Actually, um, Bitcoin represents a lot more than that. Um, and it has many applications outside of just kind of this kind of transmit uh transmittance of um a currency you can also um for example um kind of record assets um on on the blockchain and use that to tran uh you can uh, then transact your your assets um uh, without third parties so for example you could put um deeds to your house on the blockchain and then if i want to um uh, sell my house to you I would literally just um, send this um, uh, token that represents my house to you and we no longer have to go through kind of um, housing registries or estate agents, that kind of thing. And then there's also so many applications in um, things like um, smart con contracts. So we could execute a contract between one another um, automatically um, without requiring lawyers or, or, or third parties. Um, there's um, identity applications um, so there's all sorts of these kind of um, new services and uh, new applications that can be built on top of the uh, on top of the network that people still haven't really even begun to um, imagine. Mm -hmm. What would you recommend if I was like a you know first time hearing about Bitcoin and I want to just understand where where should I start? Is there a book? Is there a blog? Like is there a podcast? Um, I, I I just recently read a, a book called uh, Digital Gold. And I think that's a great kind of way to um, uh, hear the, the the crazy story about the kind of early beginnings of Bitcoin. Um, I, I I think anybody that reads that book can't help but be a little bit excited about um, uh, the potential of Bitcoin. Um, and then I think the probably strongest uh, Bitcoin uh, uh, kind of community site is probably um, uh, Reddit. Um, the the Reddit Bitcoin thread is probably a, a great place to get started in kind of picking up um, the latest uh, news and kind of people's views on where the technology is going and 
and and strange stuff that's happening at uh, on any day in Bitcoin. Um, in terms of other resource, in terms of the resources, I can I can send you after the podcast, and uh, maybe you can um, add them at the in the in the summary. Yeah, I'll put them in the show notes on our website. Um, let's talk a little bit about Bitcoin exchanges. I think something that I found confusing, and when I first heard about it and stuff is that they work independently or they operate sort of uh, independently from each other so uh because canada's smaller uh you know the the price of bitcoin there might be different from the price of bitcoin in china can you explain that a little bit um yeah so i mean i think this this kind of um concept uh, works outside of bitcoin so if you have um an exchange in um canada um a, a traditional exchange in Canada and a traditional exchange in um, the UK, for example, they will have um, different prices for um, from the Canadian dollar to the pound uh, currency uh, pair. So I think um, essentially you have um, a certain number of traders on um, a Canadian exchange, a certain number of traders on the Chinese exchange and a certain number of traders on the UK exchange. And these, these are separate entities most of the time. And, um, all of them have a different kind of view on, um, how valuable Bitcoin is. Um, but what you'll find is that if, for example, um, the traders in uh, China decide that Bitcoin is worth slightly more and they start pushing up the price, um, people, outside of China on the um, UK exchanges or the Canadian exchanges um, will start to purchase Bitcoins at the lower price um, and then sell the Bitcoins on the Chinese exchange at the higher price. And what that does is it kind of it creates sell pressure on the uh, Chinese exchange and it creates buy pressure in the, on the exchanges outside of China, um, which leads to the prices um, generally settling at a, a very similar amount. Um, and that's happening all the time across all the exchanges. So what you end up with is uh, a very similar um, price in, in equivalent terms um, across all exchanges across the world. All right. That was succinct. What was one of your earliest failures or difficulties as a fintech startup in, in mainland China, and how did you overcome them? So I think um, uh, specifically as a, uh, a foreign company, um, getting started in China, um, registration can sometimes be um, uh, a bit of a, a pain point. But um, we were quite fortunate to hear about um, the Tianhai Free Trade Zone, which is uh, to the west of uh, Shenzhen. Um, and they, at the time, were offering um, some pretty good preferential policies for um, uh, Woofies foreign um, companies to uh, get registered um, and uh, we found a great agent there that allowed us to get registered very very quickly um, within two months and at quite low cost um, and also I think in many other jurisdictions getting registered as a um, internet finance company can be quite difficult whereas in in Tianhai they're actually encouraging um, internet finance companies to get registered there. Although I do believe that's um, changed just recently. <laughs> um, what's something that you wish you spent less time on when starting out? Um, I think I think developing the product um, to um, such an extent as we did um, 
I read quite a lot of um, startup literature, and they're always talking about the kind of the the, the lean startup, the lean launch, and um, trying to get your product on the market as as quickly as possible. And um, despite knowing that, I think we still spent too long in um, developing a lot of features that uh, users don't use and don't need. Um, and that, that costs time, that costs money. Um, and it takes away time that we could have spent after releasing the product on, on, on developing things that I think are, are more useful for our, for our users. So, um, I think if I could go back, um, to our, to our early days, I would definitely spend less time in, in, in planning, um, exactly how the product is going to look and exactly how the product is going to work and adding all the, the bells and whistles that we thought were, essential but turned out to 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 not really be uh, particularly useful yeah the lean startup model talks about um uh, getting your mvp out and then adjusting to the the user's needs right and feedback yeah I, but i think as well um when you're running a a, a financial company yeah. um there's there's only so far you can take that concept you still have to um ensure that your platform is entirely secure um and I think it also requires a certain kind of extra level of um, shine and polish uh, compared to um, perhaps other um, other domains. If you're starting a, a social network, for example, um, I don't think you need to kind of have, um, I don't think in the early days you need to present as much professionalism as, as when dealing with uh, business-to-business payments. What is your proudest entrepreneurial moment to date? Uh, Remitzi, for sure. Um, I think, I think it's totally awesome that, um, uh, now with, uh, blockchain technology, um, uh, seven guys can put together, um, a company that allows, um, businesses to convert currencies and, and make payments across borders, um, prior to, um, uh, blockchain technology. Um, it required very large institutions, very large companies, um, thousands of people to kind of, um, complete these transactions. Um, it, it would take three to five working days, um, as standard. Whereas now, um, our very, very small team is, um, completing cross-border payments, uh, faster and cheaper than these much older, much larger organizations. And, uh, how are you currently attracting new new users, and how do you plan to scale Remitzi? Like, I'm assuming networking was has been essential. That's how we met, right? Uh, how do you plan on scaling? Um, I think um, with a, a business to business model, um, there's a limit to how fast you can scale. Um, if you're working in the consumer market, I think it's kind of uh, you can work on a model where you build it and they'll come. Whereas I think in business to business. Uh, a, a lot of the kind of um, uh, development comes from um, uh, relationships and um, kind of and building those up. So um, we're we're quite happy to kind of uh, scale um, slow and steady at the moment. Um, we have um, we're onboarding users every week, and um, I think um, it's it's we don't want to. We're not kind of aiming to become a billion dollar unicorn in, in a year or two years. Um, we're just uh, happy to kind of, um, uh, basically grow, grow the company as, um, steadily and sustainably as possible. I guess you don't have a ton of competitors, but, uh, 
one of my friends actually works for one of your competitors, but they're focused on the Latin American market and Spanish-speaking buyers. Uh, how do you guys see yourself in, in, in your arena? How do you guys differentiate yourselves from your, your competition? What we've done differently to many other payments startups, um, Bitcoin or not, is that we focused purely on uh, uh, one channel, that's um, inbound payments into China. Um, and I think that's um, kind of played to our own kind of experience and expertise. Uh, between Richard and I, we've got um, over 25 years of experience working in and with China. Um, and I think when you kind of focus down on just one channel like this, you can really kind of um, kind of optimize uh, one, your, your payment system. So we can deliver payments cheaper and faster than um, perhaps a company that's kind of trying to um, uh, facilitate payments to, from any country to, to any other country. Um, and also it allows us to, to focus our, um, business development, allows us to focus our marketing. Um, and I think that's really where, where our strength lies. All right. So we're getting more into the closing personal questions. What is your personal vision for Remiti? Like, where do you see the company in three to five years and then in 10 years? So I, I think this kind of relates to um, where I see the, 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 the payments market going. Um, and this is just my own personal view. Um, I think payments are going to get commodified, and I think they're going to get commodified pretty quickly. Um, I think with the advent of Bitcoin and blockchain technology, uh, payments is definitely getting cheaper, and it's forced, um, like we discussed earlier, the banks um, and the payment networks to kind of um, start kind of really kicking into gear and and improving their own systems. Um, you also have other innovative uh, fintech companies like TransferWise reducing the cost of payments. And I think we're going to get, we're going to see the cost of payments going closer and closer to zero. And for that matter, exchanging currencies too, I think is going to get um, cheaper um, also. So um, if you're just a purely a payments company, I think that's going to be really dangerous in the future because your revenue stream is going to get um, smaller and the, 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 the space is going to get more competitive. So um, I think we just see payments as something that needs to get solved now. Uh, we're certainly um, significantly more competitive than existing solutions. Um, but I think that that kind of edge will kind of start to fade um, in three to five, maybe 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, so we want to use this kind of, um, in the long term, uh, this uh, payments platform that we've built to start adding a number of other value-added services on top. So, um, for example, um, small companies um, right now um, don't really have access to uh, trade finance products, things like um, letters of credit. Um, these things are normally um, uh, kind of only the domain of very, very large companies. And even very large companies often try to avoid them due to the costs involved. But um, the beauty of Bitcoin and blockchain technology is that you don't really need um, third parties um, in, in, for example, an, an escrow uh, situation. Um, and it also allows you to automate the process so you don't need as much hands-on work. Um, and that would allow us to provide escrow services at a much um, uh, lower cost um, and open up um, escrow services to um uh, small businesses, um, which I think would be really attractive and would help them limit their risk when uh, purchasing 
products and services from uh, places like um, uh, China and elsewhere in the world. Um, and then also, I think um, there's also an, many other problems throughout the supply chain um, for uh, companies um, that Bitcoin and blockchain can help serve. And I, I think um, going further forward, we'd li- like to explore um, how we could uh, help with those two using uh, our payment rails as kind of the, the starting point. Smallest thing you've done that's brought you the largest results? Smallest thing that we've done that's give us the most results. Um, I think um, engaging um, online with um, uh, communities of people, um, creating content um, has been our best method for kind of uh, bringing in uh, uh, users. Um, we, we've recently been kind of um, engaging on platforms like Quora um, and Reddit, um, and that has really kind of um, uh, done very well for us. Um, it's it, I think it, it kind of positions us in a – it kind of allows us to show that we're kind of um, in a position of authority on, on the subject um, and um, it's where it's where people go to find out answers to their questions these days um and i think um compared to kind of more direct business development um model it's it's probably more efficient top three apps you use every day top three apps let me uh look at my iphone um i think uh certainly um for, for our team slack is key um we also use um, uh, Asana to kind of track the, the um, tasks that we're, we're all handling. I'm seeing a lot um, of synergy here. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, also for development, um, I'm a big fan of Blossom, which is kind of my uh, uh, kind of probably less well-known one. What, what's Blossom? Uh, Blossom, Blossom.io. It's essentially um, a development management app uh, based on a Kanban board. So if you've ever used Trello, um, it's quite similar to that, but um, uh, purely focused on um, web development. Um, and that's a group because we, our developers actually uh, work from London. So that it's a, uh, for us, it's a great tool to kind of help us coordinate um, the development of our platform. Okay. Um, and last question Do you have any general advice for fintech entrepreneurs out there that might be interested in the Asian market or specifically, I guess, China? Yeah, so I, I think uh, it's important to understand that um, in the consumer space, uh, Alipay and WeChat dominate, and that if you're planning on doing any kind of um, fintech work in the consumer space, you're going to be competing with them, and that's going to be really difficult. I think for any kind of um, uh, uh, entrepreneurs um, or startups trying to enter the Chinese market, you also have to be aware that um, competition can be really fierce and can actually get pretty nasty over here. Mm-hmm. And you, uh, uh, Chinese startups can often be a lot better funded and can throw money at the problem longer uh, than you can. So um, that's another kind of um, risk to, to 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 watch out for. Um, but then, in the I think in the business space, um, there's not actually many solutions over here. Um, people are still using um, the um, traditional kind of big four banks 
Um, and their services, I think, are kind of not great, um, and not very efficient. Um, so I think anybody that can help solve problems, financial problems for businesses over here, maybe could have a better shot than, than in the consumer space. Hey Neil, man! Uh, I think this was a great episode. Like a lot of a lot of new information. I tried not to make it too dense and and keep it uh, somewhat light. But uh, thanks for being on the podcast. If people want to reach out to you, where can they find you? Um, yeah. So also thanks, Rico. Um, really great to to be on your show. Um, if people want to get in touch, um, they can um, send me an email at uh, n at remitsi um, I'm also on Twitter. Um, at N Woodfine. Um, and um, we also have a, a, a live chat app on our website. So if, um, if you message me on there, I'll uh, probably pick up as long as it's um, uh, China um, working hours. All right, guys. And if you want to reach out to us and you want to find all the information that Neil uh, talked about on our website, that's sourcefineasia.com slash made in China and uh, info at sourcefineasia.com and as well Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, sourcefineasia. Thank you. There's something